Saint Marianne Cope once said, let us make the very best of the precious moments. Welcome to the 84th episode of Saint Dimpness Playbook, the SDP If You Want to Be Cool, a production of the Grexley Podcast Network. My name is Tommy. I'm a cradle Catholic, a marriage and family therapist, a husband and a father of five boys, four on earth and one in heaven. Love you, Luke. And I'm here to fill the void of Catholic conversations about mental health because I want us all to remember just how precious our lives are, how much we matter, and to use our time to help other people see that as well. We like to kick it off around here with a quick refresh of our notifications. It's time for St. Dymphna's Mentions. First up, I received an interesting question that I thought would be good to explore, the topic of agoraphobia and confession. And more specifically, if someone commits a mortal sin but is too afraid or anxious to leave the home to get to confession and then die in a state of mortal sin, what happens? I always have to start off these questions by reminding you that I'm not a theologian or a canon lawyer, thank goodness, but I can still try my best to get at the right answer. And next, I want to say to those suffering from agoraphobia just how much God loves you, understands what you're going through, and is more merciful than any of us could ever imagine. I think that's the crux of this question for me. Do I believe that God is a strict and quick to punish based on the rules kind of God? Or do I see him as one who desires that all be saved? One who is infinitely understanding of where we're at in our lives, and one who seeks to envelop us in his infinite ocean of mercy. I think objectively, I know that the latter is true, but too often, I think mostly because of my own self-loathing, I tend to act and live as if the first is true, always trusting in God's justice and punishment, but having a much harder time trusting in his mercy and understanding. Next point here, imagine that someone was bedridden, dying of cancer, had committed a mortal sin, but was unable to get to confession because of their condition and unable to get a priest to come to see them in time. Would we believe that God would punish this person dying of this physical illness who wished they could have gone to confession, but was truly unable to go? No, I don't think so. I think we'd see their condition and their desire. We'd understand the physical limitations for them because of the diagnosis and symptoms. And we would imagine our God being merciful. And yet, when we look at mental health for some reason, we think, well, this person should just overcome their intense anxiety and panic and just leave the house. It's really unfair to those suffering. It discounts how intense and difficult our mental health experiences can be. And to me, it's just another example of the stigma in our world and really the stigma that we still have in all of our hearts. But enough of me, let's look to the Catholic Answers website for some help with a more official explanation. Such judgments are up to God, who is perfectly just and merciful. We would presume that someone's desire to go to confession would be something that God would take into account in the judgment of the individual. If someone is unable to get to confession, then perfect contrition can obtain forgiveness for their sins. Paragraph 1452 of the Catechism states, When it arises from a love by which God is loved above all else, contrition is called perfect, such as contrition remits venial sins. It also obtains forgiveness of mortal sins if it includes the firm resolution to have recourse to sacramental confession as soon as possible. And if we look to the Baltimore Catechism, question 765, what is perfect contrition? Perfect contrition is that which fills us with sorrow and hatred for sin because it offends God who is infinitely good in himself and worthy of all love. And question 766, when will perfect contrition obtain pardon for mortal sin without the sacrament of penance? 
That'll happen when we cannot go to confession, but with the perfect contrition, we have the intention of going to confession as soon as possible if we again have the opportunity. So before we move on, let's pray for everyone unable to get to Mass, confession, or the sacraments because of their mental health symptoms, that God may bring them peace and consolation. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. On to the next topic, Oprah and Prince Harry have a new series focused on mental health coming to Apple TV+, and it's definitely worth talking about. We'll get started with NBC News. The Me You Can't See, which will feature both celebrities and non-celebrities alongside mental health professionals and experts, will premiere on May 21st, Apple announced on Monday. Winfrey and Prince Harry will host the conversations, quote, while opening up about their mental health journeys and struggles. The pair co-created and executive produced the series. The high-profile guests like Lady Gaga and Glenn Close will be joined by a wide range of people from across the globe living with the challenges of mental health issues and addressing their emotional well-being, according to Apple. The series transcends culture, age, gender, and socioeconomic status to destigmatize a highly misunderstood subject and give hope to viewers who learn that they are not alone. I know I've probably reached my cap on talking about Prince Harry on the podcast, but he's doing great things for mental health, you have to admit, and this latest venture seems like such an important angle. Working to tear down stigma and helping people to know they aren't alone are two goals I can most definitely get on board with and I hope this series goes on to do a lot of good for viewers and our culture as a whole. So each episode I'm going to introduce you to a saint who can help us along our journey with mental health and wellness as Catholics. It's called Friend Request and today I'm here to introduce you to Blessed Marie Ann Blondin. Born in 1809 in Canada to a family of farmers, as Wikipedia points out, at the age of 20, she became a domestic servant to a local merchant to help support her parents. Shortly after that, she was hired to work for the Sisters of the Congregation of Notre Dame of Montreal, who staffed the parochial school of the town. Having grown up illiterate, she learned how to read and write from the Sisters of the Convent. In 1833, Blondin was accepted into the novitiate of the congregation, but had to leave soon after her admission for health reasons. Over the years, she found out that one of the causes of widespread illiteracy in the French-speaking community was a certain church ruling that forbade that children be taught by members of the opposite sex. Unable to finance two schools, many parish priests chose to have none. In 1848, she presented to the Bishop of Montreal a plan to found a religious congregation for the education of poor country children, both girls and boys, in the same schools. Despite the novelty of the suggestion and possible violation of church rules, since the Canadian government was in favor of such schools, he authorized the experiment. Those teaching in the school took on the name the Congregation of the Daughters of St. Anne, which is when she took on the habit and the religious name of Marie Anne. A new chaplain was appointed to the community, however, and this priest began to exercise a dictatorial control of the community, determining his own school fees and pressuring the sisters not to exercise their right to go to a confessor of their choice, but solely to him. As a result of this conflict, the bishop instructed Marie to resign as superior of the community, and he further instructed her to refuse any position of authority in the congregation, even if she were to be elected by one of the sisters. 
The following November, she was moved to a different school, but criticism of Marie continued. Finally, under accusation of mismanagement in October of 1858, she was recalled to the mother house and was to spend the rest of her life there, assigned to domestic chores and kept from any position of authority in the congregation. She accepted this treatment as the will of God and lived in total obscurity for the rest of her life, initially not even being listed in the directory of sisters. She developed severe bronchitis in the autumn of 1889 and died less than a year later. It's really difficult to even begin to imagine the difficulty Marie Anne was put through while trying her best to follow the path God laid out for her. And I think it's just so important to have a saint like her falsely accused, forced into obscurity, and yet always faithful to God to be a part of our inner circle of saints who we reach out to for prayers and to feel connected. We like to close out this part of the podcast with a prayer. Lord, you gave blessed Marie Ann Blondin a heart impassioned for your glory, and you called her to serve with tenderness the young, the poor, and the sick. You gave her hope in the most difficult moments of her life, and you led her to deep serenity. Be praised, Lord, for your humble servant, Blessed Marie Ann Blondin. Through her intercession, grant us the favors we ask of you with confidence. Amen. And now you can't do therapy over Twitter, but I'm happy to take your tweets and help you explore a bit in the hopes of finding a light in the darkness. It's time for Twitter Therapy. Anonymous gets us started. Would it be okay if you talked about relational OCD as a Catholic? My girlfriend and I are in a rough patch right now due to my mental health negatively affecting myself and her. She's a great and wonderful woman, and yet I always feel like she's going to abandon me or cheat on me. After we talk about these things, I'm at peace with the conclusion we came up with until about a week, and then the intrusive thoughts come back and make me question everything again. She's been very patient with me, but I feel like all of this added with a recent struggle we just had has just exhausted her, and now I feel like she's really going to abandon me if the thoughts keep coming again. I've been looking into counseling for two months and finally found someone with my insurance who does EMDR. My question is this. How does one overcome and talk about relational OCD with their partner without making him or her feel like it's their fault that you're suffering? And how do you heal the wounds caused by the illness? Let's start by joining in prayer together for Anonymous and Anonymous's girlfriend for peace, understanding, consolation. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, mother of God, Pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Thank you so much for sending this question in, and please be assured of our continued prayers as you walk through this journey. We're going to start with definitions and go with madeofmillions.com to get started. Relationship OCD, also known as relationship substantination or ROCD, is a subset of OCD in which sufferers are consumed with doubts about their relationship. They question their love for their partner, their attraction to their partner, their compatibility with their partner, and their partner's love for them. Having doubts or concerns about your partner is normal. Everyone experiences them. However, for ROCD sufferers, these thoughts can be irrational, unfounded, and detrimental to day-to-day life. Common relationship OCD compulsions include obsessive questioning, you're preoccupied with very small details that make you question everything about your relationship, research, constantly reading articles that define what a successful relationship looks like, comparisons, speaking to friends about the relationship and comparing it to yours, Endless reflection, always questioning and thinking about your partner's qualities. 
seeking passion, becoming upset during moments of intimacy because you're desperate to find passion with your partner, always looking for love, an endless quest for the perfect kind of love. This obsession keeps you from actually experiencing it and creating rules for your partner. When they don't uphold them, you think the relationship isn't worth it. So back to me. I'm so grateful that you started therapy, and I, I hope EMDR is something you find helpful for your journey. But I also wanted to share the value of ERP, Exposure and Response Prevention Therapy. This is the gold standard when it comes to treating all types of obsessive compulsive disorder. And I wanted to go back to madeofmillions.com for the explanation here because I think the idea of working on this as a couple is something you're asking about and something that's so vital to recovery. So treatment for relationship OCD almost always involves you and your partner. Remember, patience and transparency are the keys to successful treatment. This subtype of OCD is best treated with exposure and response prevention therapy, ERP. ERP is when you voluntarily expose yourself to the source of your fear over and over and over again without acting out any compulsion to neutralize or stop the fear. By repeatedly facing something you're afraid of, you force your brain to recognize how irrational it is. Examples of ERP treatment might include having an open dialogue with your partner, in therapy, you'll be asked to reveal your thoughts to your partner. Remember, these thoughts have no legitimacy, and it's critical that your partner understand them in order to move past them. Educating your partner on OCD and ROCD so they can be better support for you. Comedic relief, such as joking around during intimacy, may be a part of the treatment. Clinical psychologists suggest this is to minimize the pressure to seek passion that you put on yourself. And back to me. So ERP can often sound counterintuitive, but it really helps us to rid the intrusive thoughts of the power over they have over us. And it reprograms our brains to a way of thinking that can give us freedom, peace, and hope. You have to realize when you're suffering from obsessive compulsive disorder that one of the compulsions that we have that we go to most frequently is seeking reassurance. So in this kind of OCD where we think that our partner is always going to abandon or leave us, our compulsion would be to talk to them about it, to have them assure us that they aren't going to leave us. And that only gives that intrusive thought more power because it tells our brain that we needed that reassurance to fight the thought. So another ERP treatment would be to not seek that reassurance when the intrusive thought of them abandoning us comes, right? And that way, slowly, our brain will realize that that thought has no power. All right, hang in there. Courtney is up next. Could you speak on what to look for in a therapist? Are there keys that mark good therapy? After spending over a year in therapy, I've come to the painful realization that I was really given nothing other than this person listening. We never discussed goals, when therapy would end, or any of the tools for what to do outside of the therapy room. I've recently started seeing a new therapist, and I feel like I've gotten more from her in that 45 minutes than I did in multiple sessions and dollars over the last year. I'm also having a hard time not berating myself or beating myself up for not leaving earlier. Let's begin by praying for Courtney and everyone going through the hard work of trying to find the right therapist, that God may ease the difficulty and equip all of us with the ability to trust our intuition and forgive ourselves when hindsight makes us think that we should have known better. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. 
Thank you for sending this in. And let me start with the last part of your question first. I know it can be a tendency for us to look back on so many things in our lives and tell ourselves that we should have known better. And this situation of seeing a therapist who wasn't a good fit for you for so long is precisely one of those things that we would beat ourselves up about once we find someone who actually is a good fit. But don't succumb to this temptation. No one tells us what we should look for in a therapist. No one tells us if we don't click with a therapist, we should feel free to ask for a referral out. And heck, no one really tells us what therapy is supposed to be like at all, what it should look like, what a good treatment plan would be, etc. So we definitely shouldn't feel like we should have known all of that without learning through the process. Most of us would be simply, uh, would be right to simply think a therapist is a therapist and that's that, kind of like going to a doctor, right? Consider also that sometimes at the beginning of therapy, we need someone to just listen, but then later we're ready to move on from that. Or maybe we go in not really knowing what we want from therapy, but eventually we're able to get into a new therapist's office and say, I wanna be able to set some goals and find ways to work toward them. But of course, successful therapy is all about the relationship. A therapist could have the exact training and intervention needed to address your situation, but if there isn't a good relationship there, it won't matter one bit. The whole process depends on the feeling you get from being with the therapist. Are you comfortable with them? Do they pay attention and reflect what you're saying? Are they comfortable with being corrected by you if they get it wrong? Do you feel like you can trust them? Those are the most important things. Here are some additional kind of general thoughts from this topic from Psychology Today uh, on how to find a good therapist. One, ask friends and family. Ask friends who are in therapy if they like their therapist. If they do, find out what it is they really like about them and ask your friends to ask their therapist for a referral list. Number two, shop online. When therapist shopping, look for therapists who are not selling themselves, but rather those telling you about their work and their philosophy of working with patients. Number three, gender. When choosing a therapist, almost all people have an instinctive idea on the gender of the therapist they would prefer to work with. And number four, call them on the phone and have some questions handy. Where did they go to school? What's their specialty? Um, you know, be weary of people who say they specialize in everything, right? Uh, have they worked with people who have issues like yours on the phone? Share a little bit about your presenting issue and see how the therapist responds. What's their training? Are they licensed? Are they now or have they ever been in therapy? Take some time to come up uh, with some other questions that you think would be helpful and important in sorting out who would be a good fit for you. And remember to go easy on yourself. And I, I pray that the therapist you're with now ends up being someone who can accompany you along your journey to wellness and recovery. Anonymous wraps us up. My wife gets anxiety attacks pretty frequently. She has generalized anxiety disorder and is on medication for it. For whatever reason, she gets anxiety attacks almost every time we go to mass. She hasn't been to mass since we got the COVID dispensation. And in our diocese, the dispensation will be lifted in June. She doesn't want to go back to Mass and seems pretty resolved not to go back. She's also pretty frustrated with the hypocrisy in the church, only adding fuel to the fire. She's well catechized and knows that the church teaches on what the church teaches on Sunday obligation, but still insists on not returning. What can I do? What resources could I turn to to help her? How about we all join together in prayer for Anonymous and Anonymous's wife for healing, understanding, compassion, and peace? Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thine intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. 
O mother of the word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy hear and answer me. Amen. First off, I just want to say what a blessing it is that you're thinking about ways to support your wife and help her to find healing both mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. That's a really beautiful thing. Next, some heart advice. It's important to trust God here. Trust God's patience, his timing, his willingness to wait for us as long as it takes, and the fact that he understands what's going on for us more than we could ever imagine. If she's staying away because of the anxiety and panic attacks, she would qualify, in my opinion, for the dispensation of missing mass because of illness. This is something we often overlook, thinking that someone needs to be physically ill to miss mass, but the illness most definitely can include mental health symptoms, making it difficult for us to attend. But it's important to remember that panic attacks leave us feeling like we're literally going to die, right? We have to remember this. And who could possibly be able to sit through mass with this feeling washing over them? Who wouldn't want to avoid the situation that causes a panic attack at all costs? Additionally, who could really blame her for her feelings towards the church and its behavior as a hierarchical organization? Her criticisms are valid. And it's easy to feel disappointed and distrustful when so many leaders in the church acted shamefully in so many ways. That being said, it's important to get to Mass, right? And it's important that she be supported to feel comfortable returning as soon as she's able. If she's taking medication and it isn't working enough for her to feel freedom uh, to live her life the way she used to, she should talk to her doctor about it to see if there needs to be a change, in addition to getting into therapy if she hasn't already. If going to church causes anxiety, she can work with a therapist to slowly move through some of interventions to help her overcome that anxiety one small step at a time, like visualizing going to church and coping with the anxiety that visualization brings, driving and just sitting in the parking lot and breathing through it, doing that again but when Mass is going on, sitting outside the church during Mass, etc., etc., one step at a time, right? There is hope, and there is a direction to go to find healing and peace. Just keep working hard to remember God is patient, God is understanding, and God loves your wife. All right, everyone, that's it for today's episode. Remember, you can email, DM, or tweet your questions and situations. If you'd like me to address them in a future episode, I'd be happy to keep you anonymous or not, whatever you want. Be sure to check out patreon.com to see all the great things they've got going on over there and support the cause. You can also go to Ave Maria's website to pre-order the St. Dymphna's Playbook book that's coming out in November. You can check it out and see what you think. Until next time, go easy on yourselves. Take care of yourselves. And if you feel like you're in a place where you can't even bring yourself to pray, don't worry. I'll be praying for you. And so will St. Dymphna.